Well, good morning, friends. Um, a few years ago, my wife Mariah and I, uh, we bought a little yellow house in, in Crete. And we lived there for about a year. And after being there for about a year, we started to notice that, hey, the house actually isn't as nice as what we thought. Uh, we come to find out, oh, the house is built in 1923. Okay, that makes sense why it's all rickety and it really cold and the windows don't seem to actually work when it's winter time. And so as we're thinking of this whole house and just everything going on, we start thinking, okay, maybe we should do some renovations, uh, but we're kind of broke right now, so maybe we won't do renovations. And then we started to look at houses in Lincoln, and so we said, okay, we actually maybe need to start doing some things so we can move towards selling this place. And so uh, when it came time to do renovations for the house, we had to start asking ourselves two questions. How do we want to renovate this, and how much work do we want to put into it? So as we looked at everything kind of going on, we thought, okay, we can make it look really nice so that way when people walk in, they have an idea that, oh, this place doesn't actually look this bad, and it seems like there's been some real renovations actually done to this place. Or we could do the real deconstruction of the entire house, rip all everything, even out the floors, and, and make the house actually function as it should. Guess which one we did. Uh, so as people came to the house to kind of look, they start seeing, oh, man, there's some new kind of laminate along the floor. Okay, cool. They look at the cupboards. Wow, these cupboards are like painted white. There's black handles. This looks so modern, so chic. And then you kind of walk into the bathroom, and you're like, oh, a new tub, a new vanity, a new toilet. And you kind of start looking at everything, and the walls are painted, and it's nice and new. Uh, but if the people would have actually slowed down to kind of maybe inspect the house a little more. Um, you can kind of walk alongside where the floors were, and we didn't really level everything. So some of the planks, you can kind of step and kind of feel it sink in. Uh, with some of the cupboards, we didn't, I didn't spend a ton of time. We had a bunch of help from family who came and helped us sand, but there were a couple of them that I got really lazy with, and I was just like, man, it's enough to paint it, and then just kind of put it back up. And the handles, we could have bought new ones, but then I was just kind of like, yeah, it's too much work and too much money to go spend an extra 50 cents on a new handle, so I'm trying to save a couple bucks. And it got to the point to where as I started thinking about the house and I started thinking about the entire project, I go, wow, it looked really good on the outside. It looked really clean when I just kind of stepped into it. But when it came to what the house was actually doing, the pipes were still rusty, the, the toilet plugged up all the time for no reason. It, it was just still a really old functioning house. The drywall that I tried to put up in the bathroom with the actual new tub, yeah, I didn't seal that very good, and so there's probably mold on the other side of it. And like, there were a lot of things that I didn't actually properly deconstruct it, demolish it, and bring it all back to new. So as we look at Matthew chapter 5 today, we're going to see that Jesus does something very similar in that way. We're going to see uh, that much like my house that looked really nice on the outside, I probably should have done some real deconstruction and made it completely new to function well for the people who bought it from us, but I didn't. Uh, but when we read this section, we're going to see that Jesus didn't just come to make people look nice, but he came to actually make us completely new. And so as we dive into this true section with just a bunch of raw material that you read it, and the reality is all of us are going to walk into this and kind of take it really slowly, and it's just going to pack a punch. I mean, if you walk out of here and you kind of walk away going, feel pretty good. I walked through that whole thing. I read that text, and I'm doing great. 
I mean, we got to be kind of honest to ourselves of what Christ is calling us to in this section here. And we see that Jesus actually wants to do some serious demolition work within our hearts to make us a true new creation, to see the Father who is actually perfect in heaven while we were yet so far from him, he came to bring perfection to us. So in each of these six sections, six-point sermon, who's ready for that? In each of these six sections, Jesus is going to show us today how kingdom people aren't simply supposed to be nice and have nice updates on the outside so they seem cleaned up and pretty, but we're supposed to have completely new transformed hearts and lives. So read with me again, just the first section on murder in the heart, starting in verse 21. You've heard it said to our ancestors, do not murder and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. So if you're offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to the court, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge over to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. So as we dive into this, I want to give us a challenge. Um, Like I said, there's a guarantee that we're going to walk away from this section of scripture, and we're going to be convicted. I want you to know that conviction is a good thing. Conviction is something that the Holy Spirit does in our hearts that God uses to sanctify us, to point out our sins so that we would continue to give that over to him, and it's going to affect us. And so I want us to know that it's okay to be convicted. It's okay to see some things in our lives, but I also think it's really easy that when we hear things like this, when we read scriptures like this, we can start pointing the finger. We can think of maybe spouses, children, friends, siblings, parents, whoever, and we start going, oh, this, this other person really needed to hear that section of that sermon. But the challenge I want to give us all this morning is to think of ourselves internally, to actually do some heart diagnostics of what's going on in our own heart, in our own life, to see what Jesus is calling us specifically towards. But before we get rolling, I want to go backwards just a little bit to a couple verses that Ricky preached on last week. Verse 20, Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom. So uh, Ricky talked about last week how the Pharisees and the scribes are kind of the, the varsity Christians, the most religious people, the people who were hearing this message, they would have been like, I can't be like them. They're as holy as can be. They're the varsity Christians. I'm the freshman backup is what Ricky said. And I'm like sitting there and I was like, yeah, I was the freshman backup in high school. Thanks, Ricky. Um, <laughs> but it's important to see that Jesus is continuing the same line of thought. He's saying, hey, this is a high calling that we have, that Jesus actually is calling calling us towards real righteousness, towards a holy living. And the scribes and the Pharisees would have been the ones who are telling the people, proclaiming to the people what the Old Testament law was saying, what God was calling of his people. And so Jesus uses this repeated phrase over and over and over again. In your little scripture notebook, underline it because it's repeated. That means it's important. Jesus says, you have heard it said, pointing back to the Old Testament law. And then Jesus flips it and he says, but I tell you. 
over and over again. And Jesus is not saying that the law is done away with. Remember verse 17, I did not come to abolish the law. But what Jesus is doing here is he's claiming authority. He's saying, I am God. And he's saying, hey, you guys have had a poor interpretation of the law and of the scripture for the last several hundred years. You didn't understand what I said all those years ago. So now let me just try and make it a little more clear for you. And so what the religious leaders would have done with the law is that they took it and they made it something that was simply just to the people on the outside. But what God is actually calling for, for us and for them, was an inward transformation that changes the outward appearance. So the first lesson that Jesus goes into here in this section is murder in the heart. Verse 22, we're given three different examples that Jesus gives. Hey, if you're angry at a brother, you're supposed to, you're going to receive judgment. If you insult a brother or sister, you're subject to court. If you call them a fool, oh, buddy, you get hellfire. That sounds really good. Uh, well, what I find interesting about this whole section, we kind of read those first three things, and we go, okay, cool. Um, yeah, I'm angry at somebody. I received judgment. Oh, yeah, that sounds hard. I insulted somebody. I have to go to court? Dang, I called somebody a fool. I'm going to hell for that? What? Like, it, it, it's almost like Jesus is taking these things and he's going, hey, uh, being angry at somebody, that doesn't seem super bad. Okay, insulting somebody, that seems less bad. Uh, calling somebody a fool or an idiot, eh, man, that seems less bad. And yet the punishment gets worse and worse and worse. And so what Christ is doing here, he's communicating that all anger whether it's something that's been brewing inside of us for years, or it's something that comes out of our mouth, or we're condemning people, it still leads to punishment for the one who is angry. He continues to give another uh, illustration about the offering and the altar. He says, hey, if you remember that somebody's angry at you, but you're going to give a gift to the altar, you need to put the gift down before you come to the altar to give it to me. You need to put it down and walk away from saying thank you and gratitude or confession of sin or whatever it is, and you need to go reconcile with your brother or sister who's been angry at you. And what I find really interesting about this section is Jesus doesn't say, if you're the one that's angry, go reconcile. He says, if you remember that somebody else is angry at you, go reconcile. That's a high calling. That's, that's way up there when I sit here thinking about it, and I'm like, if I even remember that somebody is upset with me, I'm supposed to just go back to them and pursue them and pursue reconciliation. Or else I'll spend time in prison, be thrown in prison until you pay the last penny. But why don't we pursue reconciliation as people? What is it that causes us to stop and to just say, uh, I don't really know, maybe not. I think it's because of multiple different reasons. Some of them might be that we don't really care enough. We're still too angry. We're afraid of confrontation. We don't like apologizing. And we really don't believe that we could ever be in the wrong. But what people can do is really hide their emotions. We can hide everything that's going on inside of us. We can keep the anger down and never bring it up. We can pretend like everything's okay. We can just ignore people and just keep smiling when we walk past them. Or we can completely avoid them. Uh, we, we can look like really nice people who actually have problems with a lot of people. 
And I'll tell you what, Sunday morning's one of the best mornings for that, ain't it? It's easy to put a smile on for an hour and a half. It's easy to put a smile on for those two hours at Citigroup on Monday night. It's really easy to fake it till you make it. But remember, Jesus didn't come to make people nice. He came to make people new. Imagine a community of people that are relentless to pursue reconciliation, that are relentless to continue to step into awkwardness, erase bitterness, and to actually remove the tension that exists between you and somebody else. That's what Jesus is calling to. It's, it's heart surgery to actually desire to reconcile with people because Christ reconciled with us. Because the God of the universe himself stepped into a messy situation and reconciled with the people who were his enemies. And he went right in front of them and died for their sin. Major heart surgery that Jesus is doing this morning for us. Let's keep reading for the next section. Adultery in the heart, 27. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your parts of your body for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Whew. Jesus expands on adultery here, and I think it's pretty obvious to everybody in the room, adultery is not a good thing. We know that it hurts people. We know that it's painful when it happens and it comes to light. And yet, there's still a massive problem with adultery in our culture. A massive problem. The statistics are horrible. It's, over, it's about 50% of couples experience adultery in their lifetime. And that's physical adultery, not even the type that Jesus is talking about here. And Jesus says it's not just simply about the physical act. It's actually what's going on in your heart and what you're doing with your eyes and what you're thinking and everything that's going on inside of you that if we lust someone, we've also committed a sin against God and against uh, um, potentially our spouse if we have one. God isn't interested in just external actions that happen, but he's concerned with our hearts and what happens to us completely internally. This is to be taken extremely serious because Jesus gives the illustration, hey, cut your hand off gouge out your eye. I think we can all say, hey, it's probably not meant to be taken literally. All, otherwise, all of us would have like hooks for hands and eye patches all over the place. But just because it's hyperbole doesn't mean that we shouldn't take it seriously. Just because Jesus is using illustrations to paint this picture does not mean that we shouldn't cut things out of our lives that are leading to that. Jesus isn't saying that physical attraction is bad. He's not saying thinking somebody is cute is a terrible thing because God's given that to us as a good gift. But when it comes to taking uh, this to another level, idolization, lustful thoughts, longing for something, it starts to corrupt our hearts. It corrupts who we are, and it starts to slip and lead us down a dark and terrible path. Jesus doesn't say that lust leads to adultery. He says lust is adultery. He's very clear about that. So for us in the room today, whether it's a struggle with pornography or it's uh, 
checking the Instagram search page just a little too long, spending too much time on TikTok, staring at somebody at the gym, lusting after a boyfriend or girlfriend, sleeping with boyfriend or girlfriend or somebody outside of marriage, Jesus says, it's time to cut that stuff out of your life. It's time to completely walk away from it. He doesn't say, hey, it's okay if you look as long as you don't touch. He says, cut it out. Completely get rid of it in your life. So my challenge for us today is to be honest with ourselves and to say, hey, man, are we actually using social media or the Internet or things that are out there uh, that we're just staring at pictures and longing at videos that we're spending our time focusing on and, and spending our time actually constantly thinking about and desiring these things more than we're desiring Jesus? We need to be honest with ourselves and, and not tell ourselves, well, I'm just keeping social media so I can make sure I keep up with people. If three-quarters of our time on social media is spent pursuing lustful thoughts and watching videos or different things, we need to be honest with ourselves and just say, hey, I need to cut out social media then. I need to cut out smartphones. I need to put a lock on my, on my computer so people can see what I'm actually looking at. He says, don't play around with it. Don't keep it every once in a while. He doesn't say, just live with it. He says, get rid of it. Cut it out of your life. Take it seriously. Don't just accept your struggle with it. Charles Spurgeon, he says, make sure that you're killing sin or else it will be killing you. And lust isn't something that only men struggle with. Chris Hemsworth isn't making hundreds of thousands of dollars because he's a great actor. <laughs> he's really not. <laughs> and that's a serious thing, though. We, we laugh because we're okay with it, right? And Jesus says, cut it out of your life. Get rid of it. Gouge out your eye. Or else it'll lead to your own corruption. Here's a quote that I heard from a pastor that might help you if you're wondering, man, am I struggling with lust or not? And he says this. He says, attraction is a good gift that God has given us that is something we notice. Lust is when it consumes your mind. Loving someone is giving yourself to one another. Lust is what you can get from them. Love is a commitment and service to people. Lust is a transaction where you serve yourself. Lust makes people objects for us to use. Love is seeing people as image bearers to be honored and respected. Friends, if you struggle with any of this, whether it's computer screens and phones or whether it's thoughts that are corrupting your minds, please take it seriously. Would you consider confessing your sin to someone else. Turn to a friend, to your huddle, to your city group, people that you know and will respond with absolute love and no judgment. We're not here to judge. I'm, I'm not here to judge you for what you've struggled with or what you mess with, but I'm here to point you to Jesus and hope that Jesus would continue to restore you and walk you towards purity and continue to point you towards himself and restore and, and make you new. That his heart would continue to, uh, or that his heart would continue to be your heart. Would you would you ask people for help to get one of the apps that tracks your websites or blocks different things? Don't take technology into a room when you're alone. Whatever it is, I want you to be able to trust that God is continuing to use you and His people to move you towards Himself. 
because he wants you to pursue him, not to pursue the things of this world. Jesus came to make us new, not just nice on the outside. Let's keep rolling. Verses 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus continues to bring the hammer, and he ties it all together here with divorce. He goes from anger to uh, adultery to divorce. It seems like he's flowing his thoughts together. And let's just be honest and point out the elephant in the room uh, that divorce is a touchy subject. There are probably people in this very room who have been through divorce. There are probably people in this very room whose marriages are struggling. There are probably people in this very room who are fresh off of divorce or who have been abused or their spouse has left them or whatever it is. Friends, I come from a family who came from divorce. My parents were divorced when I was a young kid. I know the impact that it has. I'm not stepping into this text with zero empathy or knowledge for what that looks like or how that impacts your own life with one another. I know that it's painful. I know that it's hard. I know that it's not easy. And so I want to continue to just press in and say, it's tough to walk through these conversations, and there's a reason why we preach through whole books of the Bible, because we don't just want to pick and choose the light and the nice stuff that we just want to preach through to make us feel good, but there are things that Jesus has to continue to instruct us to walk towards him in clarity and understand what he actually has for us. And so whether it was uh, walking through an abusive situation or your spouse leaving you or simply wanting to just uh, divorce for uh, just not wanting to heal some of the things that were broken in your marriage, I want us to walk through this with just a graceful heart for what Jesus is actually continuing to do in our lives because his grace abounds over and over and over again. That is, mercies are new each and every single day. With all of these things, whether it's adultery, whether it's anger, whether it's divorce, Jesus' mercies are new every single day. So here Jesus is addressing divorce because he's wanting to protect women. He's caring for women because in the Jewish tradition, uh, they, they manipulated the law so that men could divorce women for basically whatever they wanted. I mean, it went as far as the, a man could divorce his wife if she was barren, if she had poor posture, she had a weird-shaped head, thinning hair, if she went outside with her hair unbound and much more. Like, that, this, this is real. I mean, the, the reasons for divorce were just outrageous. And the Pharisees, if you flip forward to Matthew chapter 19, marriage comes back up, divorce comes back up, and Jesus addresses it again with the Pharisees, and they're talking to Jesus about it, and he says, the Pharisees are telling Jesus, but Moses has commanded us to divorce a woman. And Jesus corrects them. He says, no, it's permitted, not commanded. And they make such a fast deal of moving towards divorce. Oh, lady's not serving me anymore. Done for Gone. Here's my certificate. Oh, you went outside with your hair undone? Oh, my gosh. Divorce. Next one. And yet Jesus is addressing their hardness of hearts because their hearts were really hard. 
and he wants to address that marriage is a covenant relationship between a man and a woman that should last a lifetime. Christ has a high view of what marriage is. Matthew 19, uh, Jesus is speaking. He says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. He goes on just a few verses later. He says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts, but it was not like that from the beginning. So biblically, we see two types of divorce. We see justified divorce and unjustified divorce. And uh, if we even consider a justified divorce, it shouldn't be the first option that we run to like the Pharisees did. This is important because divorce is, is still prevalent in our day and age, is it not? I think the stat is 50% of marriages end in divorce. And Jesus has a high view of marriage. So I want to talk about justified divorce and unjustified divorce really quick. Justified divorce is one that comes as a result of sexual immorality. Jesus gives that in Matthew chapter 19. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, we, he talks about the abandonment from an unbelieving spouse. And so if you've ever been through divorce because your spouse had an affair or abused you or they left you, I want to say I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. I'm so incredibly sorry that you had to go through that because no image bearer should ever have to walk through pain like that. Not a single one. Unjustified divorce. This is uh, what happened when the Jewish uh, leaders started to give all these crazy rules to divorce and why they could divorce and why they could just walk towards it. Um, But we deal with the same thing in our culture today that uh, people go through divorce because the spark is gone or uh, they're no longer happy. The other person isn't serving them as much as they used to. Uh, They look a little different because 40 years have passed and metabolisms have slowed down. They want different things. They're mad at each other and they don't want to pursue reconciliation or actually have real conversations about what's going on. Friends, we've become selfish in our marriages to the point to where we've made it about our own personal happiness rather than serving and loving each other and having reverence for Christ, as Ephesians 5 tells us. But God has a high view of marriage. He has a really high view of marriage. And if in your past you've gone through divorce for whatever reason, whether it's justified, unjustified, whatever the reasoning, I want you to know that Jesus' grace abounds. His mercies are new every day. You can go to him and ask for forgiveness in every single aspect of your life. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. That's what the scriptures tell us. That we can go to the good king whose mercies are more each and every single day. That while we're hurting and broken within, we can turn to the king of kings whose altar is always there to bring us home. That we don't need to have shame and guilt with any sort of our sin, but that we can turn to Jesus and remember that he did away with the old so that we could be made completely new. Jesus is calling us to have a high view of marriage. If in your marriage, if you were married, I want to challenge you to completely throw the idea and thought of divorce completely out the window. That it does not exist. Just because Jesus gives permission for divorce does not mean that we should pursue divorce. God hates divorce. Malachi chapter 2, you can read his description of how much he hates it. It's pretty crazy how much he can't stand it. But if your marriage is struggling, ask for help. Ask for help. 
talk to somebody. Talk to your spouse about it. Talk to an elder, your city group, uh, your huddle people. Don't be afraid to talk about the issues that are going on in your marriage. It's life. Everybody has issues that happen within their relationship. Everyone does. If you think your marriage is great and your spouse thinks your marriage stinks, guess what? Gut check. Your marriage is not in a good spot. Friends, pursue your spouse with one another. Ask each other how you're continuing to do in marriage. Pursue each other. Date each other. Don't forget that you're still in a covenant relationship with one another to continue to die for each other, to serve each other, to love each other, to pursue Jesus together. We're not here to judge, but we're here to encourage and point you towards Jesus in hopes that he would bring reconciliation and restore life in your marriage. If there's abuse in your marriage, physical, emotional, verbal, whatever it is, if it feels like one person has all the power and you have none, please talk to somebody about it. Don't sit. Don't don't feel like it's okay for that abuse to happen at all. We care about you. We care about your safety. We care about your emotional health. We care about everything that's happening in your life, and we want to continue to see Jesus restore and make things new, and we hope that he would completely do away with any sort of abuse or any sort of damage that's been done, that he would tear down walls and make us new continually and always. If you're single, have a high view of marriage. Know that as you pursue people to date, as you go on dates, as you continue to get to know people, would you ask yourself the question, is this somebody that I could serve continually for the rest of my life? Is this someone who I could pursue and love for the rest of my days here on this earth? Is this someone who's going to point me towards Jesus and encourage me and continue to walk with me towards Christ? Because marriage is, is not uh, something that's supposed to be selfish and constantly be something where you're uh, always expecting to be served and loved, but you're supposed to be giving of yourself to one another to pursue each other towards Christ. Marriage is a, a, high, a high calling that Jesus has placed, and he has a high view of it, but Jesus continues to move into the dark spaces and bring dark things to light. And we just hope that Jesus would continue to restore marriages, whether it's here or somewhere else. Whatever it is that you might be going through, talk to somebody about it. Don't just sit and let it happen. Let it muster. Let it feel like uh, you're just lost in the middle of the darkness. Don't be okay with a hard spot. Be okay with bringing the darkness to light. Be okay with pursuing reconciliation in your marriage. Be okay with actually asking Jesus to not just make it something where you're just roommates, but that you would pursue wholeness and love and affection for each other and complete joy in your marriage because that's what Christ really wants for us is to have joy with our marriages. Next section, oaths, verse 33. Again, you have heard it said, To our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oath to the Lord. But I tell you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, by its uh, because it's God's throne, or by earth because it's His footstool, or by Jerusalem because it's a city, the great King. Do not swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black. Dang! Uh, But let your yes be yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is a form of the evil one. Man, wouldn't it be pretty sweet if we could make our hair black? or maybe make it stop balding. Um, That'd be pretty nice. That'd be a sweet spiritual gift. I would love that one. Um, So right after marriage, he talks about oaths, swearing, 
right? Uh, Jesus discusses the seriousness of oaths and promises between people. He attacks how they would give oaths and they would promise and they'd swear on these different things. And so he gives these different, uh, like, hey, they're swearing by the heavens. They're swearing by Jerusalem. They're swearing by the great city of the king, right? That's them swearing in different ways. See, the scribes, the Pharisees, they, they would uh, try to manipulate almost how they would swear by things. They would consider when they would swear to God, they would consider it something that was like, oh, I'm going to take that seriously. But if I swear to you as one another, loophole, I don't really have to take that as serious because you're really not God. And so I don't really have to keep my commitment to you. And so the Pharisees would just find those loopholes and they'd try to just swim within them and be able to kind of wiggle wherever they wanted to. But here Jesus gets to his point in verse 37. He tells them, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Because too often, you try to manipulate people into persuading or believing what's actually going on in your relationship and situation. Why would they have sworn oaths like that? Why is it that the Pharisees would have sworn oaths like that? It's because they wanted to manipulate people. They, they wanted people to believe that they were trustworthy. So they would swear these big oaths, and they'd put all these things, they'd frame them with all these promises, and they would say, hey, this is how you can believe me, because I'm swearing by heaven. This is how you could believe me because I'm swearing by Jerusalem. Don't we do the same thing? We tend to frame our promises or how we swear by different things by framing them. Whether it's, oh, cross my heart, hope to die. Or, oh, yeah, yeah, I promise I'm going to do that. Or if we start having a conversation with somebody and we say, oh, I'm just... I'm not sure, you know, maybe later, or we try to frame it, or when we get people to believe us, we say, I swear on my mother's grave. I, I swear to God. I swear by this or that. And we try to get people to actually believe us. And we have to do that because we weren't trustworthy in the first place. The only reason we have to frame our promises or, or the things that we say is because we think they won't believe us. And we think they won't believe us because we've lied to them and they've caught us before. Or we might know that we've lied before. And so we're trying to get extra credit to make sure we're protected and that they know we're serious. We've gotten to the point with swearing to where we've fancied it up with Christian language. Oh, let me just pray about it and I'll get back to you. How many of us have done that? But the honest answer, we meant no. That's the reality of it. And Jesus is saying, why don't you just simply say yes or no? Because you can't hold to it. And he's saying, just give the simple answer. Because as God's people, we're to be trustworthy. And if we have to frame our languages and our promises and everything we do, that clearly means that we don't even believe we're trustworthy. So why not let your yes be yes and your no be no? Let's keep going. Next section, retaliation. You've heard it said that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn, uh, uh, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have a coat well. Let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give the one who asks you and uh, don't turn away from the one who borrows from you. 
Uh, I'm gonna lump this section and actually the section down below it together just to kind of save us some time and they're pretty similar. But here we see Jesus is talking about how we deal with people in terms of retaliation and loving our enemies who persecute us. And they go well together because we see our responses similar to both of them. Whether it's uh, someone who's slapped us or someone who said something mean to us or someone who has treated us poorly, we want to have vengeance. We want to be the one who, who judge people. If someone's persecuted us and done something evil towards us, we don't really want to pray for them. We want them to just be totally condemned and apart from us. Like I think of Taliban and stuff that happened two months ago, and I'm like, I, I'm not trying to pray for those guys. But Jesus calls us to something else. Jesus calls us to pray for our enemies because we, as people, we desire to be the ones who judge. We desire to be the ones who give punishment. We desire to be the ones who are in charge. And yet, I want to notice something in verse 43, because if you look at it, it's either in quotes or in bold or however your Bible has it. Verse 43 says, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. Notice that love your neighbors is in quotes because that's what the command was. And hate your enemies isn't in quotes because that's not what the command was. What the Jews do? They filled in the gap. They manipulated the law. They said, oh, it doesn't say anything about our enemies, so God must mean hate them because he only told us to love our neighbor. And yet Christ is calling us to so much more. He's calling us to love those who persecute us as well. And Jesus says, pray for them. And so often we don't want to pray for the difficult people in our lives. How many of us have difficult people in our lives? Yeah. And how often do we actually want to pray for them? Yeah. And Christ is calling us to so much more. But why don't we? Why don't we? Because we want to retaliate. We want to have vengeance. We don't really care about that person that much. We don't have love and affection for them like God has love and affection for them. And we start to adopt this little kid theology. What do kids do when someone else hits them and the second one gets in trouble? They made me do it. They hit me first. Uh, that sounds like what I said yesterday. They made me do it. They, they were mean to me first. We do the same exact thing. We're the ones who want vengeance. We're the ones who want the other person to be in trouble. We want God to strike down our enemies, but we don't want God to strike down on our sin. And yet Christ is calling us to so much more. Here, when he talks about retaliation in that section, he's not being literal. Jesus is using hyperbole. He's not saying, hey, be okay with being abused, and yeah, just be all right with being walked all over. If somebody hits you, just give them the other cheek. If somebody, you know, asks you for your coat, just give them your coat whenever. Like, there are a couple cars out there. Anybody want to get rid of a Tesla or something? Um, I'll take it. Um, but he's saying there's a difference between retaliation and abuse and being walked all over and taken advantage of. Retaliation is when we want to seek vengeance. Abuse is when we we're just continually take it. Jesus isn't saying, be okay with being abused and being walked all over. But he's saying, hey, don't hate your enemies. Don't be the one to enact judgment because that's my job. So 
What did God do for us himself? When we were in the wrong, when we were the ones who actually uh, committed murder, when we were the ones who were adulterers in our hearts, when we were the ones who sinned against the holy God and persecuted, vengeance, or persecuted people and sought out vengeance on people, what did God do in the midst of all of that? While we were his enemies, he still came for us. While we were pursuing absolute vengeance and we were murdering people in our hearts, while we may not have choked somebody out with our own hands, we did it in our minds. While we pursued and asked God to totally strike somebody down because we couldn't stand him, God still came for us. While we lusted and thought about something or somebody else for way too long and just kept going back to that computer screen, Jesus still came and redeemed it all and made anew. The King of kings and the Lord of lords came to enact judgment and yet at the same time have mercy. Because he took down judgment on the cross when he paid the price for our sin and our death. And Christ himself took that all on while he knew we were still going to continue in sin even after coming to faith. And even after knowing him, his mercy just continues to come each and every single day. The entire section in this whole sermon, uh, I look at it and I'm beat up at the end. I, I had to sit with this for two weeks. I, I got, I've been beat up for the last two weeks as I just keep looking at this. But what terrifies me the most as I read this passage is the very last verse. Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Mm, yeah, I just read the stuff right above that. Don't think that's possible. It's a daunting task. It's terrifying to think about all of that. Is, is Jesus saying, if I'm not perfect, I can't be with him? If I'm not perfect, can I not be saved? Do I just have to do a bunch of good things and make sure that I'm not angry at people in my heart and I'm pursuing them? Do I just have to make sure that I've got all the technology shut off and I'm just sitting in a little room by myself making sure that I don't go astray? Am I, am I just pursuing all these things to do over and over again in order to reach perfection so that I can be okay with the Father in heaven? As, as I look at that verse, I think a better translation of the word perfection is actually wholeness or to be complete. And the truth is it that the only way we could be made whole, that we could be made perfect, that we could be complete, is through the cross and through the amazing gift that Jesus gave to us. It's through Christ himself, because he was the one who was complete, perfect, who did away with all sin, who paid the penalty on the cross so that we could have everlasting life. He was the only one who lived a perfectly righteous life, and we get to take on his righteousness for free. Whether you're a Christian or whether you're not, whether you've been following Jesus for 50 years or you've known him for three minutes, you read through this section and you get beat up. It feels like complete heart surgery. Yeah, your heart got ripped out last night with that fumble. Oh, buddy, this is way worse. But the great reminder for us in all of this is that what Jesus did on the cross, we could not accomplish for ourselves. And he accomplished it joyfully. He didn't do it with an angry heart going, ah, time to go save those sinners. 
but he did it with great joy. And a gentle and lowly heart that pursued his people. Jesus came so that we could have everlasting life with him. He is the one who is complete, who is whole, and by his death on the cross, we could receive his righteousness, his right standing, his perfection. We could be clothed with Christ, that his blood would be poured out for us, and that we would be made new by what he's done for us. So here's the challenge for us this morning, because as I read that whole section, and then I read that very last verse, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect, I think we can respond in three ways. And I think we tend to respond in two of these ways. The first way that we might respond is we're licentious. We're licentious. We can say, well, I can't be perfect, but I know that Jesus was perfect, and I know he forgave me for my sin already, so I'm just going to try a little bit, and I know he's already dealt with it on the cross. We can get lazy Uh, We can get complacent, and we don't really care that much about our personal holiness and our own sanctification and our walk towards Christ, and we still have a corrupted heart in those moments. We can be okay with just putting some laminate down on a bunch of uneven floors and be all right with it just looking nice on the outside but not actually new on the inside. We can be okay with just putting a, a, a cheap coat of paint just once over, and then if you scratch it and ding it, you can see the damage is done already there. We can be okay with just simply putting up some walls but not sealing them properly and allowing the mold to just totally continue to grow underneath. But Jesus wants us to take our sin seriously. Jesus wants us to have a hatred of sin in our lives. Jesus didn't come to make people look nice on the outside, but to completely make us new, to give us, to make us into a new creation. Friends, our whole lives were in demolition season. Our whole lives, Jesus is continuing to do work in our hearts. And he's not saying just be okay with it just sitting there. Just drag your sin around for a little bit longer and make it your pet. But he's saying, take it seriously. The second way we can respond, if we're not licentious with our sin, is we can become the legalist with our sin. We, we can look a lot like chapter 6, verse 1. What does he say to the Pharisees in chapter 6, verse 1? Or what's he say about them? He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. And we tend to go that way. We're either licentious and we don't care about it, or we become the legalist who tries to put the nice coat of paint on and make sure that everybody sees that we're taking care of our sin, that everybody knows that we're doing okay. And we start getting really strict about the rules, and we just say, hey, I got to make sure that I'm not doing that. Oh, didn't sin today. Didn't do that sin today. Didn't commit that one. Didn't lust and commit adultery. But Jesus doesn't care about our actions. He cares about our heart. The whole time, it's an inward transformation that changes the outward appearance. He's not saying just put on a bunch of nice clothes and be okay with it. He's not saying just put on a fake face for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning or Wednesday night. But he's saying, I want to make you new. And the third way we can respond is to give it over to him completely. To have a hatred of sin and an understanding of his grace and mercy that pours over us. For when we do fail, he's constantly there. 
that the perfect Father pursues us with love and affection each and every single day. Jesus is calling us to put our sin to death, but at the same time be reminded of the grace that is poured out upon us. That while we're hurting and broken within, Jesus came to actually make us new. That we wouldn't try to toss up fancy words with our mouth, but that we would pursue people with reconciliation and honesty. That we wouldn't try to continue to speed up the religious treadmill, but that we would slow down and rest in the Father's grace that he gave us. That we would continue to pursue Jesus through faith and know that his righteousness is ours because of what he has done, but to actually take it seriously of what he's calling us to and to give our hearts over to him. Not to be rule followers, not to be people who are lazy and look like the rest of the world, but to be kingdom people who are completely transformed. Over and over again through the Sermon on the Mount, he sits with his people on the mountain, the king enthroned, and speaks. He gives the Beatitudes, reminding us that the peacemakers are blessed, that the, those who, are, who mourn over their sin are blessed. He tells us, hey, I'm not here to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it for your sake. And here he reminds us time and time again, I'm not just after you to follow a bunch of rules, but I'm after your heart. I'm after who you are. This message seems like a lot of bad news, doesn't it? It seems like bad news over and over and over again as we read these verses. But the good news is that while we can be perfect or whole or complete or flourish without Jesus, he did. And the good news is that his mercy pours out each and every, every single day. Whatever it is that you're struggling with, whatever it is through that list that pierced your heart and cut you to the core, I want you to know that Christ already died for that. And you can give it over to him. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the grace that you have poured out upon us. I thank you for this message that's hard to hear. I thank you for the dissonance in my own heart over the last two weeks, and now you've continued to tear me apart and to point me towards making me new. Lord, I pray that you would create a clean heart in me and in the rest of us. God, I pray that while I was a murderer, adulterer, someone who continued to toss up lies, who hated my enemies, who desires to never pray for them and to seek out vengeance for my own Jesus, that I would be reminded of the grace that you gave to me. That while I didn't deserve any of it, you came to give me life. Jesus, would I be aware of the fact that I could not be whole or perfect or complete without you? And would you be the only thing that I long for, that we long for, Jesus? Not the things of this world, not the things that are temporary, not the things that we think will fill us with joy, not trying to impress people with words or what we look like on the outside, Jesus, but that we would confess it all to you and that you would have our hearts. My God and my King, I thank you for giving this speech. I thank you for working in my heart and bringing the conviction of the Spirit to my soul and that you would continue to make me new, Jesus. Would we be conformed into your image? Would we be transformed by the renewal of our minds and would you continue to make us new? It's in your beautiful name, amen. This message is...